Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I'm glad you're joining us this morning. And uh, if you are a guest this morning, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time, I want to say a particular. I want to give you a particularly warm welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you are a guest and you've never received one of our welcome gifts, whether you've been here a couple of times or this is your first time and you kind of snuck by our welcome team at the door, we want to make sure you get one of those welcome gifts. So on your way out, make sure you stop by and grab something. Uh, we have some information about the church as well as some local products that we want to share with you. Uh, it's a way that we support local businesses and you get to enjoy a little slice of the goodness that is Chatham County. So make sure you grab one of those gifts on your way out. Um, over the years, a number of folks that are close to me, family and friends, uh, have, been, uh, have held jobs in the service industry, in the hospitality industry, or in other service-related fields. And in fact, I held uh, a couple of jobs over the years as well in the service industry. So I tend to pay attention when I'm in those kinds of settings to how people interact, how folks treat the employees, how the employees uh, uh, treat customers or guests, how they interact with each other, how they interact with management, because I believe that you can tell a lot about a person by how they interact when they're in a service industry setting, when someone's serving them or when they are serving others. And a few years ago, I happened to be at a leadership conference and uh, something caught my ear. Uh, there was a, a, a COO and founder of a hotel company giving a leadership talk. And in the midst of his leadership talk, he talked about the company's motto and how they train staff in it. And as soon as he said the motto, I was struck. I, I, I wanted to hear more. He said the company's motto and the way they train their employees is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And I love this motto because it's communicating through this motto. They're communicating something. Management, leadership is communicating something to their employees about how they view their employees, how they view their guests, how they expect employees to interact and treat guests, how they expect employees to treat and interact each other, how they interact with management. But they're also communicating something about their expectation for how guests are going to treat their employees. And from all I've read, it seems that the company lives this out, that this isn't just something that they say to be nice but, or to sound nice, but this is ingrained in the company culture. Now, this company, and I'm not going to say which hotel company it is because I don't want to advertise, but, uh, but, but it's a leader in the industry. It's consistently a leader in the industry. And I think the motto has something to do with it. And not just that it's a motto, but that it's a value that is lived out. The motto communicates something really important. It communicates this idea that just because you are serving doesn't make you less than the people you are serving. And it also communicates that just because you can pay to receive service doesn't mean that you are greater than the folks communicating, uh, giving that service to you. And that resonates with me. Maybe it resonates with you. I think it resonates among us, among humanity, this idea that whether you are serving or being served does not make you greater or lesser than the people you are interacting with. It resonates because deep down, we know that that's true. We know that that's true. We know that that's true. And yet, we also know that things don't always play out that way. 
We see it when we're in service industries and we see how people interact with each other. Sometimes we may even catch ourselves on the receiving or on the giving end of that disparity that shouldn't be but is. This idea that there is no imbalance just because you are serving, that we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and, serving ladies and gentlemen is how it ought to be. And yet we know it isn't always that way. The passage we're going to look at today starts with the following phrase. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our gracious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And you read that and you're like, of course. Of course they shouldn't show favoritism. That sounds obvious. It sounds obvious because we know it's how it ought to be. And yet, we also know that it isn't always true. We know that it isn't always true. And it isn't true to this day, just as it wasn't true in the first century. But here's the thing. Because we know it's how it ought to be, that there there shouldn't be favoritism within communities of people who follow Jesus, when we see it, when we see it work well, when there isn't favoritism, when people are treating each other with dignity and respect, when people are treating each other in healthy ways, it stands out. It resonates, it is compelling, it is intriguing, it draws people in. We're in the middle of a series here at Chatham Community Church that we've titled uh, Integrated Faith and Life Together. And we've been talking about what it looks like when we integrate our faith, when, when, when our faith permeates every aspect of our lives and gets lived out day to day in both the big decisions and the small decisions. And today, we're going to talk about how an integrated faith impacts and shapes the ways we view each other, the ways we view one another, the way we view ourselves, and the way we treat one another, and the way we expect to be treated. Because here's the thing, when that gets lived out, when the integrated faith gets lived out in how we treat one another, and how we see one another, and what we expect from each other and what we give to each other, when it gets lived out well, it stands out. It's compelling. It makes all the difference. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 2. In fact, this whole series, we're in the book of James. And we're going to read the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. If you don't happen to have a Bible uh, with you or can't access one, it's going to be on the screen in just a second. But here we go. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, which we already read, but we'll read again. Here we go. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you, stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of of him to whom you belong? Now, if you really keep The royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point 
is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, in the first century, there were lots of criteria, lots of, of ways that were used to differentiate people. And, and it affected how people were treated, and it affected what people or how people expected to be treated and what they expected in different contexts. Not every category distinction applied in every context, but in some contexts, it made a difference whether you were a Jew or not, and it affected how you were treated. It made a difference whether you were a slave or whether you were free. It made a difference whether you were a Roman citizen or whether you weren't. It made a difference whether you were a man or a woman, whether you were a child or an adult. Whether you were considered clean or unclean affected how you were treated and what you could have access to. And it certainly made a difference whether you were rich or poor. In fact, that one was a really significant one. For example, depending on what social class you were considered to be part of, you would have been treated favorably or less favorably in legal matters. And in fact, you would have access to different legal recourses if you were of a higher class than if you were considered to be of a lower class. One of the reasons that that society favored the upper classes and showed them preferential treatment is because there was an expectation of financial benefit. But in addition to that, there, are all, there were all sorts of beliefs attached to being part of an upper class or of a rich uh, population. There was an expectation or a sense that if you were if you had means, it meant that you were more valuable. You'd been able to achieve something. You were worth more. And in addition to that, there were also religious overtones attached to that because, because financial blessing or material blessing was seen by some as a sign that your God's favor was being shown to you. In different religions, that was a sign that your God's favor was being shown to you. So there were lots of reasons why the rich were seen in one way and the poor were seen in another. So it's not surprising that in the midst of a society that treated people like that, James hones in on the difference between rich and poor and uses it in his examples. And given how James develops his argument... Given how he makes his case in James 2, and even the language and the words that he uses, it appears that, that, that the new communities of Jesus' followers, that in the new communities, people were bringing in that way of distinguishing each other into the church, into the emerging church. They were bringing in those ways that they had learned, those ways that they had grown up in, uh, to differentiate people and to classify people. They were bringing it with them and treating people accordingly. James uses words like discriminating, judging with evil thoughts, dishonoring the poor. He's not speaking in hypothetical terms. He's saying these things are happening. These things are happening. Though they had become followers of Jesus, though they were working out what it meant to have their faith, to have faith in him, their faith had seemingly not yet been integrated into how they viewed each other. It, it hadn't made its way down into those parts of their lives. And so they ended up mimicking unhealthy practices that they brought in with them. 
unhealthy practices that they were steeped in. That they were steeped in because they grew up in them, they grew up with them, because they were normal for them, and because they were normative. But it was never supposed to be that way. It was never supposed to be that way. And this emerging community of faith was always intended, always meant to be one that was transformed by integrating its faith in order that it might influence the world rather than imitate it. That it might influence the world, including how we view each other, how we treat each other, and how we expect to be treated. Now, friends, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years almost after James writes his letter, it seems like not much has changed. Things are still similar. We still have lots of ways to classify people, to differentiate people, and often that affects how we treat people, how we view people, what we expect of people, and what we feel entitled to. Here are just a few of the ways that we categorize people. Age, ability, race, ethnicity, nationality, education, social status, religion, even political affiliation. And oftentimes, for the ones we feel strongly about, when people don't quite align with what we agree with or what we think is most valuable, we may treat them as lesser. We may experience lesser treatment or worse treatment if we encounter someone who values one of these categories in a particular way and we don't quite fit in with what they think is or ought to be. And we know, deep down, we know something isn't right about it. We know it enough that we have all sorts of words to describe when these categorizations go wrong, when they are used to harm. Oftentimes the words end in some sort of ism, ageism, ableism, um, uh, sexism, racism. Now, the sad part is, is that it's not just true in our society that these things are still used to classify and differentiate and treat people differently. Oftentimes, it seeps into the church as well. And I believe it's the fruit of a disintegrated faith. Because we too, just like those people in the first century, bring into the church as we become followers of Jesus or as we start to explore what it means to be followers of Jesus, we bring in what we've learned. What we've learned at home, what we've learned at school, what we've learned in society, what we've learned from media, what we've experienced in our workplaces and what's been normed and considered normative. We bring it with us. But our development as followers of Jesus Our integrating of our faith is meant to transform that, is meant to invite us to set those things that we once considered normal or normative aside to embrace something new, to embrace something better. An integrated faith is meant to transform how we view others and enable us to influence our society rather than imitate it at least in the area that pertains to how we treat and view one another. It's important to highlight that this transformation isn't just for our benefit. It isn't just so that we will feel good. It isn't just so that we will be uh, sort of in the right. It isn't just so that we will treat people fairly. It's for the sake of blotting out, blotting out the dark stain, the dark stain of the harmful prejudices in our world. 
That's why we are transformed. That's why we integrate our faith so that then we can help bring an end to the harmful stain that is the prejudices in our world. I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. I believe that society can be changed. I believe that transformation can come. I'm not one of those people that believes that we're on a steady decline and things are going to get worse and worse until the end comes. Or at the very least, I'm unwilling to simply give in to that and not resist. I don't believe that things just have to get worse and worse and I just have to stand by and watch it happen. And it's not because I'm a particularly optimistic person. If you've been around me any length of time in the personal context, you know that I'm not a particularly optimistic person. I would say I am a realist. Some people would say I'm a mild pessimist. I don't agree with that, but that's okay. But I'm not particularly a pie-in-the-sky optimist. What I am convinced about is the power of God to transform. I've just given myself to that belief that the power of God is strong enough, big enough, great enough to bring transformation in any and every area. And so I will believe and work in the direction of believing that if our faith gets integrated, if it transforms how we view each other and how we treat each other, then we have a chance to change the society that we are immediately connected to. I believe it because I believe the God that can change my heart can change the hearts of the people around me as well. I believe it. But how do we get there? How do we collaborate with this transformation? Because you and I have a role to play in it. How do we collaborate with the transformation that enables us to be influencers rather than imitators? How do we collaborate? How do we integrate our faith in ways that change how we view others? Recently, I was uh, at the house of friends from here in the church, and I was walking around the house, and I happened to notice that there were all sorts of, 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 of lines of blue tape all around the house. Blue tape is a tape that's used uh, mostly, actually, we have some here, because uh, it, it, it sticks, but it doesn't harm, so usually they use it when they're painting. They, they use it to, to, to put up stuff and to mark where, where paint shouldn't be placed, but the way these, these lines of blue tapes were hung around, I didn't think that they were either doing some abstract art on their walls, or something was up. And I asked them, because I noticed that some of the lines ended in arrows, and then there were like circles. And I was like, what's going on? They're like, well, as part of our contract, when we purchased the house, they told us that in a year, they would come, the builders would come, and they would sort of retouch anything that was not right, or that got damaged, or that they hadn't fixed yet, and they're about to come. And so these, my friends decided to go around the house and make it very clear every single part of the house where something needed to be fixed, right? There were these huge lines of blue tape with arrows and then huge circles around what they needed to be fixed. Now, some of the things that they marked out were pretty obvious. Some of them were not, and so it was really helpful to have the tape. But they went through the trouble of identifying all of them anyway because they wanted to make sure that every single last part got addressed. They identified every single spot that wasn't right to make sure that every single spot that wasn't right got addressed. Friends, the first step in collaborating with the transformation that comes from integrating our faith into how we view others is identify any favoritism in us. The first step is to identify any possibility of favoritism in us. Maybe favoritism isn't a, a good word. We can call it bias. We can call it partiality. In some cases, we may even need to call it prejudice. 
Identify any of those places in us. So think again of the categories. Age, ability, race, ethnicity, gender, nationality, education, social status, religious affiliation, political affiliation. Are there areas, are there any of those areas where there might be, might be, even the hint of favoritism in our hearts, in your heart, in my heart? The hint of partiality, the hint of bias, the hint of prejudice. Identify it. Here's the thing, friends. We can't address what we won't admit. And we can't admit what we don't identify. We can't address what we won't admit, and we can't admit what we haven't identified. Let's take a a bit of a deeper dive. Because favoritism, bias, partiality, and prejudice can manifest itself in more than one way. Sometimes it plays out in the ways we think of and treat others. And so I'm going to share one of mine. I noticed at one point when I had moved down here that I was listening to someone talk and I was surprised by how intelligent they sounded. And it caught me off guard. I had no reason to think anything other of this person. I thought, why, why did this surprise me? And I dug a little bit and I realized what surprised me was that they sounded that intelligent and eloquent and they had a really thick southern accent. It had never occurred to me that I had developed a bias against folks with southern accents, with thick southern accents. Never occurred to me that I had assumptions ingrained about their level of intelligence or their level of eloquence. I hadn't intentionally acted on it that I was aware of it. But in that moment, something was identified. And I had to be willing to admit it so that I could address it. Which was incredibly important if I was going to pastor a church filled with people with thick southern accents. I hope that you were not part, if you, that I, I hope that you were not someone who interacted with me and felt unseen in a moment because I still hadn't identified my bias. I feel like I've addressed it, but if I haven't and you ever felt dismissed uh, or unlistened to and you happen to have a thick southern accent, feel free to come. I'd be glad to apologize. Uh, I, 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 but, but there it was, right? It affected, it probably affected how I was treating others. It probably affected whom I gave credence to. It probably affected whose opinion I valued more than not. And I have no idea where it came from. But once I was able, once it, once it emerged, I identified, I admitted, I addressed, so I could be transformed, so I could integrate my faith. Another way that bias, partiality, or prejudice might manifest itself is in places where we feel it entitles us to something. I appreciate that our church culture has structures to keep us pastors from feeling entitled in particular areas. Uh, So I'll give you an example. When I first got here, there was a pastor uh, who was covering this campus. He was our executive pastor. His name was Steve. And and he was particularly savvy about different church cultures. And he knew that there are certain church cultures where pastors have a sense of expectation of particular preferential treatment. And one of the ways that manifests itself is by having assigned parking spaces right next to the door, right? Maybe you've been to those churches that have the sign that says parking for pastors. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. 
But Steve had a sense that that could create a sense of entitlement. And so he decided, he had this phrase that he used. He used it for himself, and he used it for Alex as our lead pastor, and he used it for me. And when I got here, he communicated to me. He says, Jaime, I want you to know something. In this church, pastors walk. And here's what that means. It means that every Sunday I park up the hill. Now, I don't, I don't do that to pat myself on the back. I don't do that to feel special. I do that because it, when I got here, it became very clear that our church was going to guard and protect and had things in it to help me never feel entitled as a pastor. Just because I had a title, just because I had the education, just because folks looked to me in any particular way as a leader didn't mean I was entitled to anything special. Another way that the church guards against bias and how we treat others that I love is that pastors have no idea what people give in this church or who gives. So friend, if you gave tens of thousands of dollars last year or have given so far to the church, thank you. I have no idea. And if you've never given, if you've never given, I don't know it. And so I want you to know that, that where you are in generosity, where you are in your ability to give, where you are in your willingness to give will never impact my treatment of you. Never impact. This church has a culture that guards against bias. And I love that. These are really practical ways that we help each other out. So think again. Think again of the categories, age, race, ethnicity, nationality, political affiliation, religious affiliation, ability, gender, education, social status. Are there places where there might be bias, where there might be prejudice, where there might be favoritism, where there might be partiality that impact how you treat others or what you feel entitled to? Identify it so that you can admit it, so that you can address it, so that you can be transformed. Now, before we get too far down this path, I want to point something out, that the end, the outcome of integrating our faith into how we view others is not to erase differences or distinctions. It's to erase favoritism. It's to erase partiality. It's to erase prejudice. It's to erase bias. I love how Dr. King captures this sentiment in a portion of his I Have a Dream speech. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, King isn't saying that his dream is that his children's color won't be noticed. His dream is that they won't be judged as less than because of their color. Friends, it isn't about ignoring differences. It's impossible to ignore them. They're there. They exist. It's about removing judgment based on differences. It's about removing favoritism. It's about removing bias. It's about removing prejudice. And this is at the core of James' argument against favoritism. Because judgment is a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways, and James lays that out. He talks about how those who prioritize money and possessions will do whatever it takes to keep those money and possessions and to get more. They will exploit, James says. They will drag people into court, James says. They will even turn against God. Because if money is the thing that makes them important, if money is the thing that gives them access, if money is the thing that buys them privilege, then they can't risk losing it. 
And friends, what's true when we value money or possessions as ultimate, whether we value age as ultimate or the priority, whatever we value as the priority in distinguishing and valuing others and valuing ourselves, what's true is that what we use to assign worth can and will be used to favor or disfavor us. That sword cuts both ways, right? Favoring the young is great until you're old. Favoring the young only works until you're old. There's got to be something better. See, none of these categories that we use to classify and value, none of these categories that we use to prop ourselves or others up or to put others down or that are used to put us down, none of them, none of them are enough to bring about good for our society. None of them are enough to bring about flourishing in our world. There's got to be something more. And as we integrate our faith, we start to have eyes to see how God sees us, to value people as he values them. We talked about how one of the ways we collaborate with this process is by identifying the places of favoritism. Well, another way is to see the worth in what we've undervalued. To actually, when we identify areas of bias, of potential prejudice, to actually go and try to examine, explore, and mine for the value in that which we've undervalued, to do the work of appreciating what we've dismissed, what we've been prone to dismissing. As James is laying out their mistreatment of the poor, he talks about how God has chosen, how God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom. He's saying your favoritism is blinding you to what God is doing among the poor, to what God is doing in the group that you undervalue. That is true for any of us who have any sort of favoritism, any sort of partiality, any sort of prejudice, any sort of bias. We are blind to the good that God is doing in those groups, among those community, in those people. Uh, this was true for me as well. When I was young and immature, um, I had uh, a difficult time figuring out value in, in folks who were, um, sorry, who were developmentally challenged. I didn't interact with a lot of them, and I saw lots of caricatures on TV and in media. I'm grateful that there are fewer of those out there, and I didn't have lots of interaction. But in my church, there was a woman named Evelyn who had developmental disabilities, and um, you know. She was a, a big personality, uh, and she was, uh, she, it was hard to, for me to interact with her. I didn't know how to interact with her. I didn't know how to engage with her in healthy ways. And, um, you know, she would come up to me on Sunday mornings, and she would talk to me, and that was fine. I treated her what I felt was kindly, but I didn't really know what to do. And when I left the church uh, to move, somehow she got my phone number, and she started calling me frequently. And she would call me frequently and she would say the same things to me over and over again and we would talk. And after a while of doing this, I got tired of talking to her. And so I stopped picking up the phone. And she would leave voicemails. And sometimes I would listen to them and sometimes I would just delete them, but I would not answer the phone. And it went years almost. I think it was years. Yeah, maybe two years. I wouldn't answer the phone. And then my faith. But, but in that time, my faith was integrated in how I viewed people. And I thought, something about this isn't good thought, I am not treating her well. I'm not treating her with dignity. I am not treating her with respect. And so I made a commitment. I was like, I'm going to pick up the phone. Now, I can't pick up the phone every time because she 
boundaries are hard for her, and she calls me very, 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 very frequently. But every time that I can, I'll pick up the phone, I'll listen to her, I'll talk to her, and when she asks me to pray for her, I'll pray for her. And here's the thing. Every time that Evelyn talks to me, she says, I'm praying for you. And I know it's true. I haven't lived in Puerto Rico for 14 years. I haven't been in the same church as Evelyn uh, for 18. And Evelyn has been praying for me for close to 20 years. And I know she's doing it. And she tells me what she's praying for. She's praying for fruit in my life. She's praying for growth. She's praying for fruit in my ministry. She is the person who has most consistently and faithfully been praying for me my whole life. And I almost missed it. I almost lost it. Because I was blind to the value in who she was and how God had made her. She's a committed person. When she says she's going to do something, she does it. She doesn't mind repeating it over and over and over and over again. And I'm grateful that God has used her to open my eyes and see value in a group of people that I had undervalued, that I had dismissed, that I couldn't see with his eyes. Another area that might seem trivial, but I think is a good one to share because it's, a one, it's one where I think we differentiate and devalue is in the area of political differences. So I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to tell a story here, but I'm going to give you one quick tip for how to see the value in folks and communities that you disagree with politically. Read their best proponents. Listen to the folks who can make the case the best. I often read people I disagree with. And oftentimes, I am not convinced by their arguments. But by reading the people who best propose it, I can see the value in their thought process. I can see the logic that they follow. I can understand that they're coming at some of their conclusions from genuine, honest places. And it keeps me from caricaturizing folks on the other side of the political uh, spectrum than I am. Let's do it as well. I say this because even though it's trivial, it's one that's rending us apart as a country, and as a church. Listen to the best proponents because God is doing something there too. Faith, friends, ultimately, as, as our faith gets integrated into how we view each other, the end is that we will be able to love people freely as ones who are made in the image of God. We'll love them freely in the midst of differences in age, of differences in gender, of differences in ethnicity, of differences in nationality, of differences in political affiliation, of differences in religious affiliation, of differences in ability, of any differences that you can conjure up or imagine, we will be able to love them freely. I love, I appreciate that that's the invitation James is extending to the community, is extending to us, that the invitation into an integrated faith is an invitation into freedom. It's an invitation into freedom. We sang about it earlier. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And then it goes to the identity part. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. There's something freeing about that being the most important thing, about that being the primary thing, and about seeing people as women and men, as people made in the image and likeness of God and being able to love them in light of that. There's something freeing in that and it's what we need it's what our world needs and they need to see it in us so let's be transformed let's be the kind of people who see people as god sees them so that then we can influence 
Chatham County, colleges that we're going to, wherever God places us in the world. Let's be transformed so we can influence. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me and I'm going to pray for us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, when you look at me, when you look at us, you see your children. Hasten the day. Hasten the day when we can look at each other and in the midst of our differences in age, in gender, in political affiliation, in ability, in race, ethnicity, nationality, and so many other areas, hasten the day when in the midst of all that, we can see each other first and foremost as people created in your image with worth, value, and dignity. Lord, if that were true all over the world, things would be so different. Things would be so good. Lord, if that were true in this church, things would be exponentially better. If that were true in our communities, things would be exponentially better. If that were true in our schools, things would be exponentially better. Start with us, Lord. May we be a seed for change. In Jesus' name, amen.